Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. I was just talking. <laughs> is that my sweet voice? <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> Uh, leave it all in. Okay. okay. Let's t- <laughs> let's start out by thanking our Patreon subscribers from this past week. We had Athena, Kelly, Lauren, Rochelle, Jennifer, Christoph, Megan, Angie, Hannah, Emma, Cassie, Richard, Rhiannon, Casey, Brenda, Lee, Paul, Kelsey, David, Stephen, Kaylee, Molly, John, Jill, Haley, Tasia, Regina, Allison, and Jason. Thanks, guys. Thank you all so much. Uh, I hope you enjoyed Melon in the background, also giving you a shout out. He's giving you a meow out. <laughs> uh, so we're back for part two of Studio 54. Bow, 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 ba, da, ba, da. What some disco, was that? that some disco music. <laughs> what the fuck was that? I don't know. Desi's over here like... I'm doing... Yeah. We have to change it just enough that we don't get sued for copyright infringement. Don't worry. You just have to have one off keynote and you're good. So we need to... I guess we're loop. Are we loopy? I, am I don't. Very I feel loopy. a little loopy. I don't know I why. Do. I think it's the time change. Like I, <sighs> I like the time change when it gets dark earlier. I am actually one of the few who seem to like that. But it does. It is disconcerting or disorienting <laughs> for a week or two, yes. right? Well, there was that whole Paul F. Tompkins <clears throat> clip that was being passed around this week. I it, look just from the looks of it, it looks like it was filmed in the '90s. But it was a from a stand-up special he did then, and he's talking about what big babies everyone is for how we all are like, oh, the time change it yeah. fucked me up. I'm sorry, Paul. I thought the clip was very funny, but it does fuck me up. It fucks me up a little bit because I literally will be like, it's 10 p.m. <laughs> it's like five. I don't know what to do with myself. It's not that I'm any more tired. No, I'm not. It's more of a psychological thing. Like I took a nap today and I woke up at 5 p.m. and it was dark and I'm like, oh, I should just go back to bed. It's like midnight. Yeah. No. No. Um, so Yeah. Uh, what, where are we? Where, are, where we, are we again? What the fuck are we're we back to about? Studio Fifty Four. Now I want to add more. I want to add a lot of pictures this week. Yes. Uh, and I, someone had a great suggestion in the comments on the picture I did post today that we should find the pictures where it's like Gene Stapleton, like weird, Ooh. like very unusual people you would not expect at Studio Fifty Four. Like that would be funny if we could find a few of those. Like I do know that Betty Ford went one time no way yes so like that could be fun to find sort of some of the funniest uh people who did go to studio 54 do you remember when gene stapleton played the fairy godmother in fairy tale theater 
Yes. I love Gene Stapleton. Me too. I love fairy tale theater. We should um, do a rewatch of that. Is it is it available? I think they put it on Hulu. Oh. I don't know if it's still up there, but believe me, I had the entire box set of VHS tapes when I was a child. It's the best show. We might still have it. I'll ask my mom. Okay. So once again, the sources are Inside Studio 54 by Mark Fleischman, The Last Party by Anthony Hayden Guest. Uh, I watched an A&E biography called Steve Rubell, Lord of the Disco from 1998 and a really good documentary on Netflix about Studio 54 called Studio 54. I also read a lot of old newspaper articles from like the New York Post from that time. (laughs) A lot of people said they watched the documentary on Netflix. Oh. I saw some comments. Um, It's very good. Yeah. I liked it. I got emotional at the end. You did? I'll get into that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So where we are, um, where we left off last week, it is December of 1977. Steve Rubel has been interviewed in New York Magazine. He gives a very open uh, interview about the success of Studio 54, in which he brags about the club's astronomical profits, proclaiming that only the mafia does it better. Now, Probably not a great idea to publicly declare your your primarily cash business on par with the mob. And people in his life are uh, upset and baffled why he said this. Ian Schrager is furious at his bravado. Steve's brother Don tells him it's the stupidest thing he's ever done. But Steve is Steve and he can't help but brag. He's a showman. He, he liked to put it out there and be this big man on campus or whatever. But the IRS is also the IRS and they quickly take notice. They quietly begin poking around in this business that typically tends to have a skimming scene going on. This is very common in uh, cash businesses like a club would be. So it's 1978 now. Studio 54 is thriving. And there's even a little bit of an escalation in the disco wars. A new club opens that's trying to beat Studio 54 at their own game. This club is called Xenon. Now, this is regarded as even more of a fashion crowd, while Studio 54 now is more Hollywood. Oh, uh, There's a lot of crossover, though. I mean, Andy Warhol, Halston, Tom Cruise, Richard Avedon, Cher, O.J. Simpson, all of these are people who go to Xenon throughout like the 80s, like the late 70s into the 80s. Uh, so, yeah, the walls were silver at Xenon. They had rays of light coming out from a giant X above the dance floor. Um, people danced with even less clothing on at Xenon than Studio 54, which had lots of tits hanging out. Now, uh, sometimes they even wore swimsuits while dancing at Xenon. Oh, my God. Now, this is the first nightclub to to have go-go boxes for amateur go-go dancers to pop in. You know those boxes? Yeah. Um, This club had them. But for amateurs. Yes. Like you could go in one of those cages. I've been in one of those. You have? Yeah, they had them at a club that I used to go to called Limelight. Oh, and you danced in one of those? Well, I mean, I went in for a second. Yeah. Let's get real. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Xenon was featured in Life Magazine in an article about disco. They also had full-time DJ Jellybean Benitez. Oh my God. So this is where he got his start. We all know him as uh, the guy who fucked Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> now they had a long uh, relationship 
or that's he kinda, produced her music. Did he produce her first album? I think he did. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's possible. I can't remember. I just Hold on. know that connection. Look this up. Okay. Yes, he was one of the producers okay. on on Madonna's self-titled debut album in 1983. Great. I love that album. It's a classic. Uh, okay, great. So now Xenon's taking off, but Studio 54 is still banging. Uh, in June of 1978, though, they get their first little push of bad press. An article in Esquire is published called Sour Notes at the Hottest Disco. This is pretty much the first negative uh, article or big time press that they've gotten. Not, o- not only did it expose the liquor license scam that the club had been uh, partaking in <laughs> early on, it also got into the history of Ian Schrager's dad. Now, I mentioned last time that his dad was involved in some kind of illegal gambling, uh, et cetera, that came out when his dad died. Well, it turns out that he had ties to Meyer Lansky, one uh, of the biggest, n- most notorious gangsters of all time. Wow. And he was involved like very high up, like second in command of his bookmaking and gambling operation, which was probably a pretty big deal. Yeah. So this expose devastated Ian Schrager. He had... I'm, I think I mentioned this as well, kind of stayed in the background. So this kind of put him in the forefront and he's also very close to his dad. So who had died when he was in college. So he just was not happy with this article. Another blow to the club, their wall of secrecy, like that kind of let them be studio 54 was shattered in a major way. Now this wall of secrecy I'm talking about is that celebs could go in there and do whatever they wanted and not have to worry that press would be inside or anyone would take their pictures and get outside. It would get outside. But that changed when Canadian first lady, Margaret Trudeau, Justin's mom, (laughs) (laughs) she got all looted out. She loved going to studio 54 (laughs) got looted out, fell off a couch, which pulled her dress up and she was wearing no underwear. And someone took a photo. Canadian newspapers printed the pic of her bush with headlines. Wait, wait, her bush was exposed? Yes, her bush was completely exposed. But they printed that picture? Yes. You can see it online. You can see her bush? Yes. Yeah. You can see a sliver. Uh, (laughs) It's pretty, I mean, it is pretty obvious. So they would print, they printed the pic with headlines like the beaver will never die. (laughs) Now she would leave her husband, Pierre, who is the prime minister of Canada with the kids to go party at studio 54. This was really scandalous. Yeah. In fact, she was at studio 54 the night he lost to a conservative opponent. Oh my God. So she kind of blew it for everyone. <laughs> Celebs began to feel a little less safe going there and exposing their bushes. <laughs> they wanted to be free. You want to be able to do that without ending up in the New York Post. It's pretty funny to see this picture of this Canadian first lady. Like, God bless her. I admire her, to be honest. <laughs> I love that she was going there. She's like, fuck it. Take the kids. I'm going down to fucking New York. <laughs> what a queen. So... At this point, Schrager and Rubel are making a lot of money with their illegal skim operation. It'll be like reported that <laughs> this is not a skim. They're literally skimming 80% of the money they're <laughs> making. I don't know what kind. That's not a skim. 
that's a that's a chunk. <laughs> <laughs> that's like they're they're only reporting a skim. Right. Um Jack Duche, I mentioned him last week. He is their third business partner. Uh, he's the guy whose kid had his uh, bar mitzvah at their first club. He really wanted to go legit. He saw the possibilities of capitalizing on the Studio 54 brand and was like, we don't have to scam to be rich. The possibilities were really endless to him. He's like, we could have more clubs, hotels, restaurants. We could open a rep- record label or production company. And, and that's true. They were connected to everybody. Right. But Rubel and Schrager were happy with their operation. And Steve at this point was a drooling mess, always on quaaludes. Uh, He later fully admits, Jack later fully admits, he knowingly went along with it all despite his reservations. They were just drunk with success. They, they, um, like many before, you know, have been in these circumstances and think they can get away with everything. Like right. they got away with it this long. No, they're above the law. They're in this rarefied air that lets them get away with murder. And sometimes it's true. People can get away with this shit when they're, they're very rich. Uh, sometimes they don't though. <laughs> so you never know which one you're going to be. It's definitely a risk. Uh, I did mention that they launched that the jeans, the Studio 54 jeans. That was the one thing they did sort of uh, brand, I guess, but that was about it. So while the the IRS is low-key looking into Studio 4, the party is raging on, and they put on some of their most infamous parties during this year. Uh, these parties would often cost tens of thousands of dollars. These were one-night-only productions, um, they weren't like theme nights that happen once a month. These were just like one night you could show up. Uh, these productions were, some people would say they put Broadway shows to shame. That's how involved they were. Carl Lagerfeld held a um, candlelit 18th century party. The staff were all dressed like with the powdered wigs and stuff like that. Um for Valentine's Day, they had a garden with flower beds, picket fences, um, they had harpist playing. Gia, uh, Giancarlo Giametti threw a circus-themed birthday party for Valentino there. Um, according to Giametti, Ian put it together in three days. We had a circus ring with sand and mermaids on trapezes. Fellini, trapezes? What are those? <laughs> Am I saying it wrong? Oh, I guess that is the plural. I don't know. What? <laughs> Sorry. Jesus Christ. She's a high school dropout, okay? <laughs> Don't be just, fooled. I, no, I just, it wasn't you. It wasn't you. It, okay. It was me realizing that I've never, it was me realizing I've, I've never heard the plural of trapeze before. Is I don't that, know how, I don't even, I don't think I've ever said it before. Trapezes. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Trapezes? Uh, anyways don't add us i don't care i'll never say it again (laughs) fellini gave us costumes from his film the clowns valentino was dressed as the ringmaster and marina schiano came as a palm reader with a parrot on her shoulder see this is why it would be fun to be rich seriously that's what i would do with my money (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i mean even when you just look at celebrity halloween costumes it's like they have access to the best costumes from the furthest reaches of the globe yes. with the people who can custom make stuff. Like, this is what I would spend my money on is elaborate fucking 
uh, over the top flamboyant shit like this. I would do the parties, but I do have to say I'm more impressed with someone who puts a costume together from a thrift store than anything Heidi Klum has ever done. Because it's like you have all the money. Right. I'm impressed when someone's like, I found this at Goodwill. <laughs> Yes, that's yes. that's like impressive to me. It is obviously that's more impressive to do it with a very small budget. Yes, but it, I'm saying it would be very fun to have the resources to put together. something. Well, I would want to wear Fellini's costumes. Well, yes, for sure, of course, that would be uh, cool. But I like I like spending money on all the details. Yeah, like that's where I would blow all my money. Like yeah, yeah and let's have real flower pots, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, another big soiree they had was in honor of Dolly Parton. These pictures are great. We definitely have to post some of these. I have to say, when I saw these pictures of Dolly Parton, I'm like, she looks better now than she did then. Like, she really looks good. I mean, I know she's had a lot of work done and she'll she'll be the first to admit that. Right. But it was kind of funny seeing and I was like, oh my God, like, she looks great. She looks, she's still super hot. Uh, yeah. So... She uh, visited New York City because she had some concert dates. He created a rural, uh, I'm sorry, Steve Rubel created a rural farm setting uh, for her arrival to Studio 54. Steve went all out for that, according to Michael Musto. They had haystacks and horses and donkeys and mules running around the club. Now, they got most of these animals from a farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, they also had huge wine barrels filled with corn. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> there was a farm wagon with a pile of hay on top. There were chickens in a pen. Um, unfortunately, Dolly was kind of like not that into it. She came and was completely freaked out by how many people were there. So I think she thought it might have been a more of an exclusive party, and she was kind of overwhelmed by the crowd. I'm sure it's like... It's an overwhelming crowd yeah. for someone who maybe isn't expecting it because Studio 54 definitely had this wild bunch of people. She was very nervous and she actually just went up to the balcony and kind of stayed up there um, for a while and people watched, but she was definitely not that comfortable being there. I don't know if the balcony was the place to be though. <laughs> <laughs> so another big party. Uh, that's sort of infamous is Liz Taylor's 46th birthday party. Um, this was considered to be the most amazing party of all. The Rockettes performed, and then they presented Liz, uh, who was standing on a float of gardenias between Halston and her husband, Senator John Warner. That's who she was married to at the time. Uh, she was presented with a cake that was a full-size portrait of her. She cut into uh, the cake from the her bosom section. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like a big event. There's lots of pictures. Um, according to David Brett, who wrote a biography on Liz Taylor, a dozen well-endowed hunks, naked but for sequin posing pouches. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> what is, why are What's they posing? posing pouch? I guess she had just covered their dick just for poses. Yeah. I don't know. And some with <laughs> joints dangling from the corners of their mouths, scattered gardenia petals in the couple's path as they entered. The dancing and fun continued until the early hours. The atmosphere was heavy with the stench of poppers, and Elizabeth was bebopping with a bevy of gay porn stars until Warner put his foot down and said they were leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Warhol wrote about his party, this party in his journal. I need to get Andy Warhol diaries because yeah. uh, it sounds amazing. He said, this is a quote, Liz looked like a belly button, like a little fat Cupid doll. <laughs> Diana <laughs> Vreeland was there and people were being brought over to Liz. She was the queen. I'm at a quarterback, 
Bob was watching Bianca take poppers and he said to Diana Vreeland, it really becomes more like pagan Rome every day. And she said, I should hope so. Isn't that what we're after? <laughs> Elizabeth, T- I'm sorry, I already said that. She had the Rockettes there. That's right. I said it again. <laughs> uh, another big bash celebrated the release of Greece. Uh, so Rubel and whoever he hired recreated the movie's uh, retro 50s set in the inside the club. You would walk in the hallway and it was uh, lockers and high, like high school lockers on both sides. Um, Alan Carr, the producer of the movie, obviously came to this event. He said, and then you went into the main part of the club and he had all these old convertible cars from the <gasps> 50s inside the club. Um, he... They had more difficult time finding the vintage cars than they did having finding the livestock. Um, according to uh, one, honestly, of the- it would not be as exciting today <laughs> if you walked into the club and there was like but, somebody's vintage Saturn. It's like, what am I at Bob's Big Boys? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm saying oh. no. I'm saying today because Greece then was like twenty years. Oh, 20, right, right, right. Twenty years ago was the fifties. What is it? Twenty years ago, nine. It's going to be like a Kia. Yeah, it's going to be somebody's like two thousand Kia. Oh my god! Maybe, You're right. You know what? Maybe they'll get someone's Escalade. Escalades were. Oh big. Yeah. yeah, or like a Hummer limo or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm one trying those, to think. One of, of like, those yellow Hummers. That's what you would have for the early two thousands car party. So part of the problem is nobody wanted to rent cars to Studio Fifty Four because these these cars are expensive and yeah. people are like really uh, picky about them, but they found an auto museum in New Jersey who agreed to bring them up uh, and park these cars on the dance floor. Um, But minutes before the party started, the fire marshal cited a major hazard. The cars hadn't been drained of their gasoline. So (gasps) each car had to be taken back on the street and have its tank emptied before it was put back inside the club. They did have the big party. After that, there was a 1950 Chevy convertible that got a bit trashed because people climbed inside and burned the seats. So we ended up having to pay for new seats, but the party was wild. Um, so another big party was Andy Warhol's 50th birthday. Um, Rubel gave Andy Warhol a fresh roll of 5,000 free drink tickets and a silver garbage can filled with $1,000 worth of crisp dollar bills. <laughs> According to friends, Warhol said it was the best present he ever received. Um, at some point, they tipped the bucket over Andy Warhol's head, and he was not amused. He scrambled to collect all of the single the single dollar bills off the floor. He he didn't want to lose like a single one. Now he would later. Uh, once they get busted for tax evasion, this gift was listed on their infamous list of party favors, where they would, uh, cata- like they had a they. They kept track of every drug that they gave to a celebrity for free or anything they gave a celeb for free in this list that they had in their secret stash books. Uh, and this gift was one of them. In the in the book, it said that it only contained $800. And Andy was very upset. He said, you mean you told me there was $1,000 in there and there was only $800? I knew I should have counted. What like, does he, he was, need that He money? was legit. I don't know. <laughs> no, wait, Andy Warhol is a weirdo. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. Look, I'm just saying, I'm going to say it. <laughs> Cancel me if you must. <laughs> uh, another story I saw about Andy Warhol, he like, I think he loved having a lot of dollar bills because one time Steve invited him over to his place and he dumped a big pile of cash onto Andy to play with 
So I think Andy, I mean, I kind of had that fantasy too, <laughs> to be like on a bed with like money and you're like throwing it around. Who doesn't have that? But I would never involve another person in that deranged <laughs> setting. <laughs> make anyone else see that. Um, okay. So a lot of speculation was made about those comments Steve made in the New York Magazine article as being what tipped the IRS off. But what really led to the raid was they had an informant. So they, they kind of had their eye on them because of that article, but then they got someone who was an informant. This was a dis- disgruntled employee who got fired by Steve named Donald Moon. Now, turning someone in like this, um, you, you can get a bounty. Like you get a reward for turning in like a tax cheat at this level. But he didn't want the bounty. Instead, he requested to go into the witness protection program. <laughs> and he got put in the witness protection program and oh like disappeared God. forever. Like no one knows what happened to him. Isn't that weird? Over Steve Rubell? I don't think he was. I honestly was like, didn't get the impression that he was really afraid, but that's what he wanted. Do you know what I'm saying? I didn't even know you could request that. Maybe like, he was worried that all the celebrities would be like, you totally ruined the party, man. I have no idea, but I thought that was pretty interesting. On December 14th, 1978, 30 IRS agents enter Studio 54 and just, they know exactly where to go. Like this guy told them everything. They're seizing garbage bags full of cash from the basement. They have uh, one of those drop ceilings where you can push the panels up and up there, there's all these hidden uh, set of books, like the real financial records. They find uh, five ounces of cocaine. They find a huge bag of 300 quaaludes in a safe. Ian Traeger at some point shows up with like his briefcase full of papers because he walks into the club with it. (laughs) They're able to seize his briefcase. Like if he had not gone in, they wouldn't have been able to get this. And in this briefcase, they find white powder, which they immediately test. And it's the, according to this guy in the documentary, it was pure cocaine. He says it was, it was so pure. It was cut right from the key. They take Schrager in, into custody right away for possessing drugs. Rubel is arrested later that day. The club was thought to be taking in $70,000 a night, and the owners were accused of skimming $2.5 million. So they get released the next morning on bail. Their lawyer is once again Roy Cohn. Now, Roy Cohn advises them once they get out of prison, or I'm sorry, out of jail, uh, to trash the place where the IRS had searched. And then they take all these photos of them, like, look at my desk is turned over. Oh my God. They really wanted to have the IRS look like the Gestapo had come in and just done this sort of unprecedented raid, unprecedented raid on this club. Um, This actually pisses the IRS even more because they were intentionally very careful about keeping everything neat and clean. Um, So they definitely blow it with that little stunt because the IRS is even more determined now to bust them. There is a um, sketch on SNL about the raid. John Belushi plays Steve Rubell. In the sketch, he is in his puffy jacket that Steve was famous for wearing that was full of drugs and money. And he's literally uh, just has powder all (laughs) down his face. (laughs) Just like, just cocaine everywhere or whatever it was. On June... so eventually the grand jury does indict them as well as Jack Duche on 12 counts of fraud and tax evasion. They all plead not guilty initially. Um, 
Rubel then does this wild stunt where he accuses President Carter's White House chief of staff, Hamilton Jordan, of using cocaine in the basement of Studio 54 in April of 1978. Now, he th- I think he thought that he was going to drag the president and like politicians into this and kind of uh, make the story about that rather than them. Right. But... The White House is in charge of the IRS. <laughs> like it's another stupid stunt that he pulls that makes things only worse. Now, I kind of read about this guy, Hamilton Jordan. Uh, he's like this young, sort of good old boy country party boy. Like he's very young. He has this really powerful job in the Carter administration. And he's repeatedly there's rumors around about him. Like there has been rumors about him like constantly while he's been in office, including his cocaine usage and having anonymous sex at Studio 54. So it probably is all true, but this was still stupid of Steve to go on air and like publicly uh, put these accusations out there. Um, I thought this other story was kind of funny about Jordan. I mean, it's funny because it's like, what? Apparently he was staring at the breast of an Egyptian ambassador's wife at a Washington reception. And he said, I've always wanted to see the pyramids. Oh my and God. Got like, he got like in trouble. For <laughs> Wait, that. he did. He got in trouble for that. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that, that story became like very famous that he said that. I mean, there's no proof of it. It's not like on can't, uh, camera obviously he denied that he did it <laughs> but i just was like what this shit's always been going on now post watergate um the reason this ended up being bad for steve was because post watergate there were all these like laws made that any sort of impropriety by someone in the white house had to be investigated to full to the full force of the law. I don't think that exists anymore. No. <laughs> Does it? I don't know. I think we stopped doing that at some point. But, but that just made them have to investigate this accusation of him doing cocaine, which just gave them more ammo against Studio 54. Um, a close friend of Steve said, ultimately, Steve became completely mad with power. He lost his mind. He thought he was above the law. The drugs, the quaaludes had a lot to do with it. He was just completely out of touch with reality at this point. Meanwhile, Roy Cohn is trying to negotiate this plea bargain and Studio 54 is, they're still open for business. Like they're still having these wild parties. And in a way, it almost got bigger after the bust. People were kind of like, yeah, tax fraud, <laughs> fuck it, like whatever. Um, and, and that September, they even did a million dollar expansion uh, at the club. They had a third floor with a new uh, bar. They installed a moving bridge, which went above the dance floor. So people didn't have to walk through the dance floor. It just like floated over. Um, They even redid the the rubber on the balcony. (laughs) Everything was... Everything was upholstered in rubber so they could just hose it down at the end of the night. (laughs) They like redid that. Like it literally was like a version of like that meme, everything is fine. (laughs) Like the fire burning in the background. Um, In November, Duche, he turned state evidence against uh, Rubel and Schrager. So they eventually plead guilty to two counts of corporate and personal income tax evasion. And in January of 1980, they were sentenced to three and a half years in prison. So what do they do? Before they're scheduled to turn themselves in to to go to prison, they throw a big party at Studio 54. Now, this last party is billed as the end of modern day Gomorrah. 
This is a huge blowout. Uh, it's not open to the public. They just have 2,000 of Studio 54's most uh, iconic guests, including Halston, Andy Warhol is there, Sylvester Stallone is there, uh, Richard Gere, Liza Minnelli obviously is there singing New York, New York. <laughs> At some point, Steve Rubell and Diana Ross go up to the DJ booth and Diana Ross begins to sing over the crowd. Uh, she was totally wasted, just trashed. Um, Chris Williamson, who is uh, there with Carolina Herrera, uh, said, it was rather moving and touching. Steve had a passion for Diana. He had every single song in his car. <laughs> now, she gets so trashed that she gets Steve Rubell up there and he starts singing uh, as well on the microphone. He starts singing uh, My Way by Frank Sinatra. So that's his big blowout. Um, he's very enthusiastic during this performance. He basically falls over at some point and they had to hold him by his ankles because he was hanging off the DJ booth, like almost falling to his death. Like they had to like save him. I mean, guys love singing my way when they get in trouble. And it's always like, no, you should not do it your way. <laughs> and that's the bad way. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a very popular song for uh, I've been a little bad boy. I, I feel like that that is a red flag. If you if you are on a karaoke date and the guy sings my way, walk on out. I've, you know what, Debbie? Then a lot of people are in trouble because I feel like that is a very popular karaoke. I question you. Wait, wasn't okay? We should cover this some point. But wasn't there like a my way killing in the Philippines because people got so mad if someone sang my way? Oh, there's yeah. some kind of crime related to my way that we'll have to cover. Right. Okay. So they just kept playing My Way all night, as well as Gloria Gaynor's classic song, I Will Survive. Um, <laughs> Rubel at some point makes an emotional speech to his guest. Um, one guest remembers him being coked out of his mind. Bianca Jagger was hugging him and saying, I love you. I love you. I don't know what I'm going to do without studio. Everyone's crying and weeping. A New York Post columnist named Jack Martin found Rubel in the club during the early morning hours. He was sort of spaced out. He had accepted it. It was a sad going away party, but we were laughing and trying to have fun. We were with him literally until he took a car to go home and meet the authorities. So the party was literally over. Schrager says in the documentary, when I look back at it now, it was so preposterous. What were we thinking? Um, you're thinking you're about to go to prison. I mean, I get it. You want to have one last party, but it is definitely a little obnoxious. Right? I, <laughs> who, who, who among us wouldn't have one last bash before I mean, they go to prison? It was really the end of an era. Right? I mean... I would give anything to have been at that party. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty uh, wild. So uh, this is another uh, excerpt from Andy Warhol's diaries. Hearing how much money Steve actually had, he could have been treating us so wonderfully. He could have been so generous and spending so much, and he just wasn't. He did take us to La Grenoire once, but it could have been so much more. What Halston's been most upset about in the Studio 54 bus is that the IRS agents discovered another little room that nobody knew about, and Halston is hurt because he's such a close friend of Steve, and Steve hadn't told him about this room. <laughs> Andy Warhol... Marry me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> what a what a freak. Um, I love him. 
Uh, another interesting tidbit, tidbit, Sylvester Stallone bought the last legal drink at Studio 54. Well, good for him. That's a little fact for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> an interesting thing about Studio 54, even though it's sort of unconnected, it did coincide with the death of disco. Like right around the same time, I would love to cover this story because I find it very uh, interesting. It seems it's very toxic masculinity to me because obviously disco is music of black people and gay people, even like women to an extent. And it's like this like backlash against disco has always struck me as uh, gross. And I think a lot of people kind of see that as well. Yeah. Um, so this is where they're literally taking disco records to baseball games and having these big events where they burn and break these records. So it's kind of, uh, it coincides with that. And it also coincides with the incoming Reagan administration where it kind of goes from studio 54 to New York becomes this city of the yuppie, the what is that guy? I want to call him Gordon Gecko. It is Gordon. Gordon, Gordon Gecko. Yeah, I was like, is that right, Gecko? <laughs> it didn't sound right to me for a second. But it's like that mentality is kind of like the new thing that's coming in, right? This yuppie business, Wall Street, whatever. I just gotta say, you don't have to like disco, but to deny that it's not an innovative, legitimately incredible important kind of music is stupid. First of all... You don't have... No one's making you listen to disco. No. But if you hate disco that much, you have an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's lots of music I don't like. I'm not buying the records and beating them up. It's you so, have an issue. It's so stupid. <laughs> you need to examine that. Also, I would say, go listen to Donna Summer's 17-minute version of the MacArthur Park Suite, and then tell me you don't like disco. Disco is some of the most incredible production in any type of music. I agree. It's uh, orchestral. It's great. I, I love it. it. I love disco. Me too. Um, by the way, you should watch that Bee Gees documentary. It's so good. I highly recommend it. Uh, I love that documentary. So anyway, that's my documentary corner. Desi's documentary <laughs> corner. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash H-C-S. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. It's despite having this send-off party they're not prepared for prison. Like it's a shocking moment for them when they're like, we're actually going to prison. Ian spoke of them pretty much being denial into this till the moment that it happened, but it quickly became very real. Steve is in particularly very depressed. What once they're in jail or prison now, shortly after entering prison, Steve uh, changes the channel in the community room without asking. And he gets hung on a nail outside the gym room. Like they, they hook him up. Uh, for being so uh, obnoxious. Uh, They don't like it. He learns his lesson very quickly. He becomes the mayor of prison, according to Schrader. Oh. Like, people love him eventually. Like, he works his magic in prison. They don't like it still, though. They are serving time in the tombs in Manhattan, and then they get sent to uh, minimum security prison in Alabama. Uh, Now, at some point, they are offered a reduced sentence if they're willing to provide information to the feds about how these skimming businesses work. In the documentary, this guy who's in charge, this uh, fed federal agent, I guess, says what what they did is they invited them to this meeting to see if they'd give information, and they ordered the best Chinese food from Chinatown was in the other room so that Steve and Ian could smell the Chinese food, and they were so hungry for it because they'd only eaten prison food. <gasps> I was like, that would work on me. I know, <laughs> and that's kind of. I mean, I don't know if that's what convinced them, but they eventually do give them this information and they got to eat this Chinese food. Now, Ian obviously had a lot of issues doing this because of his father. He's like, my father would be like, no, you do your time like a man. You never give the feds information. So this was like very difficult for him, but he was just not cut out to be in prison. Anyway, as far I read a few different things, but I think that they basically provided information that led to the bust of four other New York club owners, but they didn't specifically say, here's this person, this person, this person. It was just enough to kind of, for the feds to figure out who was cheating and who was skimming, et cetera. I'm sure those people hate 
Ian and Steve though. Um, they eventually get paroled to New York's Phoenix house, which is like a halfway house, according to Schrager. Um, so we had an enforced interlude in our lives. Thank God we were together and we were able to keep our zest for life. Steve was like the mayor of jail, the same way he was the mayor of Studio 54. It was there that we decided we wanted to go into the hotel business because we suffered something most people don't when they make a mistake like we did. We couldn't go back into the business we knew. We didn't have anything when we got out. I remember Calvin Klein offering to give us a blank check, which of course we didn't take. Now, part of the reason they can't go back into the club business is because felons can't get a liquor license. So they cannot open up a nightclub. Once they get out, as I said, a lot has changed. It's not the same world, even just in this short period. I think they're only in prison or in various you know states of prison for 13 months. Oh. So it was like half of what they're... Or more than... It was like a third of their sentence. So it's the early 80s when they get out. Yeah, it's like 81, I think. Um, but that's like a... It's wildly different like yeah. from when they went in, uh, just in that short period of time. So while they were in prison, Studio 54 was bought by a hotel owner named Mark Fleischman. He is also the person who wrote that book. There's a lot of information in that book that he wrote about him running Studio 54 and all that, if you're interested uh, he got Carmen D'Alessio, uh, the woman who put the parties together for Studio 54. So Studio 54 was still operating as a club. Yes. Uh, so he even got Mark Benecki, the doorman from Studio 54. But obviously, it's just not the same. Right. Uh, Steve and Ian try to help out on sort of events when they get out of prison, including Marcy Klein's Sweet 16 party. Remember Marcy Klein? <laughs> <laughs> Do no. you? Who's That's that? Calvin Klein's daughter. Oh. She was always like running his company like in the 90s. Yes. Uh, yeah. So she used to be a teenager and she had her sweet 16 well. at Studio 54. <laughs> Who knew? Um, it eventually closes in 1983. Now they do move into the hotel business. They get a hotel from Fleischmann um, called the Executive Hotel. They really turn this thing around and and sort of make this hotel called Morgan's, which is New York's first boutique hotel. They basically invent the idea of boutique hotels. Really? Yes. And they do it again and again and again. Like Ian Schrager has like 38 hotels now. Like he's super rich. Um, but they have a few together. Um, Bianca Jagger moves into one of their hotels. So it's like still the same group of people. Cher is in one of them. And Steve Rubel loves telling his friends that Tom Cruise came into her apartment and Val Kilmer came in. <laughs> He's like calling Cher out for all her lovers. Um, and it's a, it's a hit, this hotel. It turns a profit its first year. It has a 96% occupancy rate. So it's always booked. Um, then they help open the Palladium Club in 1985. Now, they can't own it because of that liquor license, so they're basically high-paid consultants. Um, by 1986, Steve is worth $50 million. What? Again, that's how much money these fucking hotels... I was like, hotels make that much money? Damn. <laughs> like, that's a lot of money. We got to open a Hollywood crime scene hotel. Seriously. Um, they have a cover story in New York Magazine again. This time they're the comeback kids. And Ian is on the cover as well with Steve. And that's like, he's, Ian says in the documentary that Steve was like, hey, like you're getting attention. He kind of didn't love sharing it, but it was like, okay. I mean, they are best friends. They buy um, a mansion together in Southampton. 
Wow. They like live together. These guys, that's like us. We have to get a, a mansion too. I agree. And a hotel. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they both began dating employees of Carolina Herrera. Schrager dates one of her public relations people and Rubel starts living with a man named Bill Hamilton. This is his first serious open gay relationship that he's ever had. According to Hamilton, Steve had never had a long-term relationship before, but then he never expected to live long. Somebody who goes at his pace and created something that big, well, your body and mind just can't do it for a long time. He always told me he'd rather do what he wanted and live less than do nothing and live to 75. Well, sadly, that will prove to be true. Steve begins to feel sick in 1988. He did not tell any of his friends about this, but by the end of 1989, he could no longer hide it. He was diagnosed with hepatitis and was told it would take four to eight weeks to treat it, but he kept feeling worse and worse. It was his brother who had him finally take a blood test that showed he was HIV positive and it had progressed to AIDS by this point. Now, Don Rebell described in the documentary that at this time, uh, being diagnosed with AIDS was not just being diagnosed with a disease, but it was being diagnosed with condemnation. Like people did not want this information to get out at this time. And Steve was much like other people. He begged his brother to not only not tell anyone, but especially his parents. He did not want his parents to know he didn't even want his parents to know he was gay. Like right. he was still at that level. Um, so obviously that was something he wanted to keep secret. Okay. I don't have to tell you what an absolute tragedy this AIDS crisis was at this time and the enormous loss felt particularly in the creative community in New York City at the time. And the Studio 54 microcosm was no different. Half of the hot young bartenders who worked there would eventually die of the disease, as well as numerous um, people who worked on the set decorating and creating the look of the club. Uh, built the club inside the interior, and not to mention many of the famous guests who went to Studio 54. Uh, so Steve began taking AZT, but because the illness was furthered by his continued drug and drug use and drinking, he had a really compromised immune system. In July of 1989, he was so sick, he finally checks himself into Beth Israel uh, Medical Center in New York under an assumed name and to seek treatment for severe um, ulcers, kidney failure, and hepatitis. He didn't admit to anyone, even his nephew who was leaving the country for a month, how sick he was and that he's basically dying. Uh, so that's another thing I think is sad, like really sad at the time and very common is that, um, you know, AIDS is decimating this community and they feel like they can't even tell anyone because they're being treated like social pariahs yeah. by a lot of people. And they feel like people won't want to be with them when they die because they're afraid of getting AIDS. Like that was a thing back then. Uh, and they were embarrassed or ashamed because they felt like it was their fault. Um, there's a lot going on. it's just, whenever I see stuff during this period, it's very, uh, sad and it always affects me for many days after I see something. Oh, me too. It's, I just, yeah. So he had to overcome so much to get to this point in his life, but this was just one thing that he could not beat. He died at Beth Israel on July 25th, 1989, and his official cause of death in most of his obituaries was listed as hepatitis and septic shock. Um, like when you read those obituaries that came at the time, that's what they are. That's what they say. He did not want people to know what he died of. Another common thing uh, back then. 
Um, his, his nephew, Jason, uh, said, Steve made you feel so good always. His high came off of you. He felt good if you felt good. And his funeral was basically a Studio 54 reunion. He had big, big guests, uh, Bianca Jagger, Calvin Klein, like all of them showed up to his funeral um, at the Riverside Chapel. Um, And now many still talk about these days of Studio 54 fondly, other than Bianca Jagger, who said, I would rather die than talk about Studio 54. I wish it never existed. I don't know what happened to her. (laughs) Why'd she say that? I have no idea. She really doesn't like her memories of Studio 54. Oh, I have no idea. She's like, is she like an uptight activist now or something? Because I know she's like the animal thing with the horse she was like upset about. It's weird. Maybe she's mad that that's sort of her most famous thing. Uh, Maybe. I have no idea. Um, One of the most touching aspects of the documentary is you really see uh, the extent of his relationship with Ian. Like, I was genuinely touched by this relationship between these two men. They met in college. They spoke every day. And they never left each other's side. Like, they went to prison together. And then they still were best friends afterwards. Um... Ian's loss of this friendship really affected him. And I don't know, there might be a ton of bad stories about him that I don't know about. But in this documentary, he came off very uh, sincere to me. Um, I just felt very emotional watching him speak about it. Um, Ian eventually does get um, pardoned for this. This is, uh, he gets pardoned by President Obama in January of 2017. Like in that last month of his presidency, they always do that huge mass pardon thing. And this is one of the rare cases where people were very supportive of a pardon for him. Even in the New York Post, one of the writers wrote um, that he felt Ian had this longstanding contrition. Like he's one of the people who actually did feel bad, unlike most white-collar criminals. He never whined about what had happened to him. He basically always took the blame, according to this Post article. He said, it was a terrible thing that I did. It weighed on me. It was a terrible embarrassment to me and my family and my kids. Um, The prosecutor who prosecuted both of these men supported his pardon 100%. He said that Ian was a good man who got carried away by the success of it all and acknowledged that Studio 54 was a phenomenon that was unprecedented. And he feels like that's what happened with these guys. They just couldn't handle it, basically. And they were very young. Like, remember, they're like late 20s, early 30s during this period. So, yeah, that's the story. Uh, I've been to Studio 54. It was repurposed into a theater for the 1998 production of Cabaret starring Natasha Richardson and Alan Cumming. I saw that show. You saw that? Yeah. That show was directed by Sam Mendes and the choreography was by Rob Marshall. The seating in the club, it was made to look like the Kit Kat Club and it had like little red lights, like lamps on little tables. Like it was like a... Oh um, my God. It was, you know, they recreated that. So it wasn't like you were in a theater. It was like you were in a cabaret. I can't believe you saw that show. It's the best Broadway show (laughs) production I've ever seen. Like... Uh, I fell madly in love with Alan Cumming after seeing it. I was literally, I was like, that's the best man that ever existed. (laughs) Like, I loved him. I love him too. Uh, I can't imagine anything that I'll ever see that I liked as much as that 
uh, production because it's like one of my favorite musicals. I love the music. He's, I love the story. He's one of the best MCs I've ever seen. Oh my god, he really nails like um, the androgyny and like the, yeah that kind of aspect of it. Right, it's like everyone wanted to fuck him. Do you oh. know what I mean? It was like men and women wanted him. And I feel like he probably is one of the first to really capture that aspect of it. Uh, Natasha Richardson is like incredible in it. She was Sally. Yeah. Uh, it's such a good production. I just loved it. So I am happy I saw it. And I was excited to go into Studio 54. I remember being like, this is at Studio 54. Like, even though it doesn't look anything like, like they took a lot of the black paint off, all that ornate uh, fixtures and stuff like that. But yeah. But it's so. still historical. Oh, absolutely. And it was kind of a cool combination. Like, yeah. It just all kind of fit. So yeah, I did see that. I wish I could see it again. Me too. It's such a good show. I love that show. I mean, I wish I could see it in person. Yeah. I mean, obviously Natasha Richardson sadly is dead now, but um I think Jennifer Jason Lee took over for her at some point. I love her too. She's great. She's so hot. She's very hot. She's so hot. Um so yeah. That's that Studio was, 54. Desi, that was su- such a good episode. I'm so proud of you. I mean oh, I mean you. that very sincerely. <laughs> I got choked up at the end too. I'm telling you, watching Ian talk about him and just his death is sad and it just really reminded... I was actually started reading about that period again because it's some of my earliest memories is the AIDS crisis and like being like, what's going on here? Like, these people are sick. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you used to just hear certain diseases and you're like, that's AIDS. Like, they're just using the cancer. Right. Do you know what I mean? It was such a weird period because it's like these people are sick, like, and the government a, and the government wasn't yeah, helping. As a kid, you're just like that doesn't make sense. You help sick people, right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, right. Uh, but it didn't make me. I started researching Rock Hudson. I was like, oh, we have to do an episode on him at some point, yeah, because he is very interesting. Uh, and that whole period with him is just uh, sad. Uh, yeah, it's sad. So we'll post some unsad pictures. Yeah, we'll, we'll get that uh, Gene Stapleton picture up there. <laughs> we could. Someone mentioned it. I don't know that it exists. I don't want to waste your time looking for Gene Stapleton at Studio Fifty Four. I will spend an hour tomorrow <laughs> looking for a picture of Gene Stapleton at Studio Fifty Four because I need to see it. We just need to airbrush. Have someone like Photoshop it. <laughs> I want if we can't find the picture, one of our listeners, can you Photoshop Gene Stapleton as the fairy godmother from Fairy Tale Theater into Oh, that would fit. An image of But it would also be great seeing her in one of her uh, all in the family house dresses. Either or like there's two different ways we can go here. Either either are great ideas. Because she could be with Truman Capote, who would often show up in his robe and slippers. Like he took that route uh, at Studio 54, which I admire. As For a loungewear sure. lover. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. Well, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.